Hello and welcome to the interview. I'm Ada McLaughlin, the Editor-in-Chief of Mediaite. My guest this week is MSNBC anchor Eamon Mahildin. Eamon is the host of a new weekend primetime show on MSNBC called Eamon. It airs on Saturday and Sunday nights. Before taking the anchor chair, Eamon spent years as a foreign correspondent covering conflict across Europe and the Middle East. His commentary on the recent violence between Israel and Hamas in Gaza made headlines, not just because the Egyptian-American journalist is one of the few Muslim anchors on cable news, but also because of his history reporting on the region, which included two years living in the Gaza Strip. I called up Eamon on Wednesday to discuss his incredible career, his new MSNBC show, and the way American media covers conflicts like the one between Israel and Gaza. Uh, Eamon, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you. Yeah, thanks for coming on. I'm excited to speak with you. So you recently went from anchoring a weekday show on MSNBC, you were on at 3 p.m., to hosting a new weekend primetime show. Uh, What can you tell us about the new program? Yeah, so the new program falls in the uh, perspective space. And as the show title suggests, um, you get a lot of me in it. So there is uh, my perspective on a lot of the uh, big stories of the day, uh, both here in the United States and around the world. Uh, it's prime time. It's the weekend. So we have a little bit more space to be a little bit more casual. The segments are a little bit longer. And because of where we fall um, in, in the spectrum of the weekdays, we have the ability to kind of look back at all the big events of the week. We don't necessarily have to uh, be tied down to the events of a single day. Uh, when you're anchoring a daily show, you're kind of a little bit confined to that. But when you do a weekend show, you have the perspective of either looking forward to what's happening in the week ahead or being able to kind of step back and take a look um, at you know 30,000 feet and above what just happened over the course of the week and, and try to connect those dots for our viewers. So uh, it's fun. It's, uh, it's longer than what I was doing before in terms of the format. And we have a little bit more flexibility with uh, the personality and the perspective uh, in, in the segments. Right. It's almost like it's more of a magazine show, right? You have three hours on the weekend as opposed to just sort of catching up with the breaking news during the day, which you was your you know previous job during the week. Exactly. Um, now, I wanted to ask about your career. You've had this crazy career. It began in the aftermath of 9-11. Yep. You went on to cover the invasion of Iraq, the Gaza War, the Arab Spring, conflict across Europe and the Middle East. How did you get your start in this line of work? You know, that's a great question. In fact, uh, it actually, it started at NBC News. I was a student at American University in Washington, D.C., um, and NBC at the time, their, uh, their studios on Nebraska Avenue, right across, the, uh, right across the campus from American University where I went to school. Um, and I had gotten to know a Today Show producer who is a lifelong friend of mine. And he told me that, you know, you should consider applying for the desk assistant program at NBC, which I did. And this was in the summer of 2000, which was during the time of the Israeli-Palestinian Camp David summit under President Bill Clinton. And so I had applied for it and didn't actually get it for the first six months. And this was like, you know, pre cell phone days in a way that I was like calling every day and applying and finally <laughs> got in an interview and ultimately got it. And my first day ever working in news was President Bush's inauguration. That was literally the first day I showed up to um, to a newsroom. And that's essentially how it began. What happened over the next couple of years was really out of my control in the sense that I started working for NBC. And you may recall that summer of 2001 was actually a very slow news cycle. There was, you know, shark attacks off the coast of Florida, North Carolina. There was uh, a big murder mystery political scandal in DC with uh, Gary Condit and Chandra Levy and the murder mystery there. And so 
I was thinking like, is this really the news environment that I wanted to work in? Were these the types of stories I wanted to, to cover? Uh, and I had actually applied to law school, um, thinking I would go to law school. And then unfortunately, September 11th happened just after summer. And everything else, as it has for so many people, changed after that moment, because I literally went from being a desk assistant to starting to work in the investigative unit using my, because I speak Arabic fluently, I started you know, using my language skills. I got sent overseas to uh, be involved in some of the coverage initially of Afghanistan. And so you, know, you talked about some of the career milestone and everything throughout that point was defined by what was happening in the region. So you know, I, I covered a little bit of the Afghanistan war. The following year, President Bush gave his famous axis of evil speech and it looked like the US was about to invade Iraq. So I left NBC to go work for CNN as a producer. And I ended up going to cover the Iraq war and its aftermath from 2003 till 2006 in the region. And then almost every year or two years, there has been either a major conflict or a huge story that has just taken me further and further along uh, in the career. Needless to say, I deferred law school. I never ended up going to law school. My mother still asks me if I'm ever going to go back to law school. <laughs> I think I've, I, I try to convince her, like, I think I've actually carved out a career now in journalism where I could... Uh -huh. uh, I could uh, stay in this for the long haul, but we'll see. <laughs> and you're you're now in the anchor chair. Do you miss being out in the field covering foreign conflicts abroad? You know, that's a really good question. I get asked that a lot. And the short answer is yes. Sometimes I do miss being a witness to history, but mm. I have also grown to appreciate how much being in the anchor chair allows you to have the conversations in the way that you want to. And there's no doubt that the importance of reporting is unparalleled. To be on the ground, to see firsthand what has happened or what is happening allows you to offer that insight to, to viewers around the world in a way that nothing can. Mm -hmm. But there is also another dimension to it, which is depending on who your audience is and what your viewers expect. And sometimes they may need the explanation. They may need the perspective of somebody who's from the region or you know, has been on the ground or has a different worldview to be able to explain these things to them or to share their insights with them and to hear from them. And I think that's what I've grown to appreciate now being in the anchor chair. You get to have the conversation in a way that I think is different than just being on the ground, answering the questions that you're asked. You now get to ask the questions in a way that can help uh, illuminate or shed perspective on, on topics or stories or conflicts around the world. You're also based in New York now, correct? Yes. Yeah. Are, do you like being in New York? Are you not are you stir crazy at all for not you know traveling abroad, or do you are you happy in New York? I love New York. I'm, I mean, New York for me in the U.S. is the is my home. It's where my children were born. It's where I got married. So for me, it's um, or I should say where I met my wife. Um, but you know, not where I got married. But for me, it's ultimately it, it is the closest thing, and it's the longest place I've ever lived in my life. Believe it or not, I mean, from the day that I was born, I've never lived anywhere more than four or five years. And New York now has is the longest place I've lived, which is now seven years. So there is a part of me that's like, you know, at some point you start getting a little bit antsy, like, are you gonna live abroad again? Do you wanna live abroad again? Yeah. Um, you know, both my wife and I very much are, uh, you know, our worldview is that we, we wanna travel, we wanna raise our kids in a kind of um, international setting. And New York is such an amazing and vibrant city for that because it is, it is truly a global city. So we already have so much of the world here in New York, but at the same time, we love to travel as much as possible and, and get out of uh, the U.S. and New York uh, whenever we get a chance. You're doing a lot of domestic political coverage on your show now. Is that a beat yeah. that you're enjoying? Yeah, it is. I think um, for me, I, I truly enjoy 
you know, having the worldview that I have and the experience that I have, which is almost 15, 20 years of covering the United States' actions abroad, yeah. it's interesting sometimes to be able to bring that back into the U.S. and try to look at America from an outside perspective and try to explain it to Americans from like, how would this look like if we were on the outside? And I, and there's so many examples just in the last year from whether January the 6th or even just trying to explain the filibuster and trying to explain negotiations for what's happening right now with the reconciliation bill. If you look at these things purely from an American perspective, they sometimes make sense and, and they're easy to understand. But if you actually take a step back and say, this is how it is perceived. This is how it's looked like from outside of the United States. You can say like, wow, this this must be this must be insane for somebody on the outside looking and trying to understand how American democracy functions. Not passing judgment on it, but just being able to explain it in of itself, or trying to explain something like the electoral college and how you can win the popular vote but not even become the president, and how you know all, all the all the things that we talk about routinely here, which I think most Americans probably either take for granted or don't necessarily understand when you when you try to bring that kind of perspective from outside of the United States, you can say, wow, that does sound a little bit crazy or doesn't, doesn't make sense. Now, one of the places that you lived abroad uh, was in Gaza. You lived there for, for two years. Yeah. It, I think it can be hard for Americans to understand what life is like in Gaza, particularly when violence erupts there. Could you explain that a bit for us? What it's like to actually live in Gaza for people that live there every day? Sure. I mean, um... Gaza is one of the most fascinating places I've lived for a whole host of reasons. One, um, the people there demonstrate a kind of resilience um, and a fortitude that I've never seen anywhere else. There is, like anywhere you live, there is a kind of simplicity to life about human interaction, which is you care about your family, you care about your job, you care about the safety of your friends and family. And Gaza has that in the face of incredible, incredible adversity. Mm. Um, adversity that I had never seen in so many of the other places that I had covered for a whole host of reasons. What they're facing internally in terms of the political pressures and the pressure they face living in a very tightly enclosed enclave with no freedom to travel, no freedom to move, no freedom to kind of dream beyond what the reality is. I, I remember when I lived in Gaza, there were people who, and I can only imagine it's gotten worse. There was a generation of Palestinians who were born, who are now, had never even left the Gaza Strip to go beyond what they had seen. And, and I had met people who had gotten accepted into universities and wanted to go abroad. And because of the blockade on the Gaza Strip, were never able to pursue that. So for me, there is this kind of resilience about life there that is absolutely um, inspiring the way people carry themselves. And there's a tremendous amount of frustration that this is not the way it has to be. And because of the geopolitics of what has happened and the ongoing conflict and the blockade that's imposed on people there, um, it's completely you know, unfair and com completely problematic for people who are apolitical. Mm -hmm. The reality is when you live in Gaza, you cannot remove yourself from the politics and you are punished collectively for the actions of what is happening in the broader sense of the of the conflict. Now, speaking of that, I, I think you had a really poignant post on Instagram during the recent outbreak of violence. And it was about how the bombing affects innocent people caught up in the conflict. You noted that Israel's efforts to avoid civilian casualties don't work so well when you're talking about dropping bombs in a densely populated city like Gaza. Could you explain that a little bit? 
Sure. Um, you know, as you mentioned, Gaza is densely populated and take aside the intentions by the Israeli military, which is, you know, the Israeli military says that they are trying to avoid civilians, but they want to target specific targets and buildings and roads and individuals that they believe are um, enemies. The way Gaza is and the way that, you know, the buildings are so densely populated and how crowded it is, it is almost impossible and inconceivable to just simply attack a building or a street that, not, that does not have some kind of collateral damage for civilians. And as I made it, you know, in that post, when I talked about it, I lived in Gaza for two years and there was two components to this. There was one, this component where if you were in a building and the Israelis would call the building and tell you, hey, we're about to bomb this building, you need to evacuate, or they drop leaflets on you. From the perspective of the outside world, that is seen, and the way the Israeli government presents it is that is seen as a humanitarian gesture. We're telling people to leave the area. But in the context of those who are living on the ground, who may not have anywhere to go, it is, from their perspective, a psychological tool of terror, because there is no place for them to leave. There is no place for them to go because Gaza is barricaded in the sense that if we were in a conflict zone, like we see, for example, in a place like Syria, people leave Syria, people move into Turkey, people use their feet to avoid the conflict by walking and risking their lives, but nonetheless getting out of the conflict zone. In a place like Gaza, what we've seen over the years with conflicts is every inch of Gaza gets bombed and it happens almost simultaneously. And so when people are being told to leave and get out of the building, there really is no place for them to go. They can't escape Gaza when you're looking at it from the perspective of, you know, the border with Egypt is closed. They can't go anywhere into the sea. They obviously can't go into Israel and every inch of Gaza is being bombarded. And so for me, what I highlighted with a few of the posts is that, you know, Israel said that they were targeting a Hamas tunnel or a building in which Hamas um, had an apartment or was using a, a location. But at the end of the day, these high-rise buildings um, are being decimated and destroyed. And it raises the question whether or not that is, you know, in some form, collective punishment. You're, you are, at the end of the day, destroying an entire building where perhaps residents live for the sake of one target. And we may not be privy to the intelligence that Israel has about whether that is a legitimate target. But what is um, evident is that there will be, you know, dozens of families, hundreds of people who will be displaced, who will lose their homes, and perhaps even worse, lose their lives as we've seen. Now, during that recent outbreak of violence between Israel and Hamas in Gaza, you received some attention for doing something unique in cable news, which was giving a voice to the Palestinian side of the conflict. Do you see that as something that had been missing from American media? Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. I think that in, in historically, I think that um, this conflict has not gotten a balanced uh, coverage. Uh, across all forms of American media um, and hearing from Palestinians about their experiences and their perspectives and their opinions, uh, not just in the peak moment of a conflict, but throughout the low intensity periods of the conflict is rare. And so I think one of the things that I've always set out to do is to widen the conversation by saying, let's have the conversation with people from both sides, which again is if you followed the totality of my coverage in the span of that period, I interviewed Israeli officials. I believe I was the last person to interview Naftali Bennett, who then became the Israeli prime minister. 
uh, I, I interviewed Mark Regev. Uh, we interviewed, I mean, we interviewed a totality of people on both sides of the conflict in the span, but we set out to make sure that in the coverage, we also heard from Palestinians about their experiences and what they wanted to convey uh, to the outside world about how they were living through this period. Did you receive any blowback or criticism for your coverage for it? Be, you know, there were uh, accusations that it was anti-Israel. Did you receive any criticism either from within MSNBC or outside the network? No, I did. Well, no. So uh, let me separate that. I did yeah. not receive any criticism from internally within um, mm -hmm. the network. And I think any healthy newsroom, um, you definitely have a robust debate about coverage. So everything that we had in terms of conversation, um, I would say is part of a normal editorial, healthy, robust debate about coverage, how to cover stories, the guests that you want to have, the topics you want to get, what you want to focus on. So that for me does not fall into the realm of criticism. What happens outside of um, NBC is not something I can control because this is such a conflict that is um, so widely watched and is extremely polarizing in the sense that people have very strong views about it and have very strong opinions about it. And so I am sure, and I'm not sure that I particularly can recall anything, but I'm sure that there's people out there who were uh, critical of the coverage. And certainly on Twitter, there are people that are critical of the coverage. I'm not, I'm not using that as a litmus test, but I would qualify that as uh, criticism. You know, when you're when you're speaking to people on the other side, and perhaps one side or the other rejects it um, or doesn't like it, you get criticized for it. And it goes both ways. I mean, I've been criticized as well from um, you know Palestinians who have felt the coverage skewed one way or the other, or did not adequately address one issue, or perhaps you know um, wasn't nuanced enough from their perspective. So it, it's a conflict like any other conflict that has very polarizing views, very committed people, very strong opinions on it. And when you're trying to explain it, you're not going to ever be able to um, please everyone with your uh, coverage. Right. This is one thing I really wanted to ask you about. And it's yeah. a trend that sort of irked me when this was all being covered. And it was some of the viral commentary on social media. Now, social media is obviously an essential tool. Uh, it was during the Arab Spring, during the Syrian civil war, and during the recent violence between Israel and Hamas. But there was one post that went viral on Instagram in the US that bothered me. And it was a screenshot of a New York Times headline that described the Israel-Gaza violence as a conflict. And the Instagram post insisted that you cannot describe what was going on as a, as a conflict because that word somehow suggested that the two parties involved had equal power. Now, that seems to me like an attempt to redefine the word conflict and a case of sort of the language of activism trying to bully journalism into covering the story on their terms. What did you think about that? And did you feel any pressure from activists to cover the story in a certain way? Um, I don't feel pressure from activists to cover a story from a certain way, just because I don't engage with activists in a, in a way that allows activists to shape your coverage. I mean, it's mm. just not how I've operated and it's not necessarily how I think any journalist that I know and that I respect operates. I think we try to expose ourselves to a plethora of viewpoints from across the spectrum. And again, I speak for myself here, which is, this is what I try to do. And you're absolutely right. I mean, I've gotten criticized for simply using the word conflict. Uh, and when you're dealing with, when you're dealing with Twitter and you have limitations in terms of character and people get upset, like you shouldn't use the word conflict. This is an X, Y, and Z, you know, this is their interpretation. This is, I, I'm not gonna sit here and debate with, with activists as to whether or not the word conflict is applicable to yeah. something that has been taking place uh, for years that ebbs and flows in different periods. And you can't just selectively choose when you want to join into the conversation of 
uh, what is happening between Israelis and Palestinians. It's important to have that kind of longevity of over the past 100 years and speak about it uh, openly and frankly, um, and not just kind of jump into the moment where this is the trend and everybody on social media is now kind of like aware of what you can or cannot say. And they're trying to make certain words off limits and, and taboo um, on both sides, because that ultimately is counterproductive and is not honest or, you know, I, I think it's not grounded in, in reality. One common criticism of American media is that it parachutes into war zones when bombs start flying, but otherwise ignores or has a very myopic view of foreign conflict. Uh, the situation in Gaza is a good example of that. On the other hand, I think it's really hard to cover those stories when the audience just isn't there. And do you think it's possible for the media to get Americans to care about foreign conflict when bombs aren't being dropped? Yes, but I, I think I mean if you just look at the word, the way that you phrased the question, which is, can you get American audiences engaged in a conflict when bombs aren't dropping? And I think that the reality on the ground is not always a state of conflict. So, right. so, so maybe you know the question is, can you get Americans interested in Gaza or in the West Bank hmm. when bombs are not dropping? So it's a it's like peaks of intensity versus you know um, you know valleys of intensity. It's like, do you want to cover the conflict when it's not bombs? And that's a really important question. Um, and I think the, the short answer to that, and I, the way that I've tried to understand it now, having been both a correspondent and, a, and an anchor is, to what extent do news organizations make decisions based solely on audience interest versus explaining it and explaining these key moments so that when there is a peak moment of intensity or violence, the viewer has a better understanding of what led to this moment. When do you decide to start covering the moment of the cycle of conflict, right? Conflicts, these intensities, I mean, I would argue that there is always a low level in period of conflict that's taking place, especially in a place like Israel and Palestine. Just the same way it's happening right now in a place like Syria. We're not covering every single day or certainly not every single moment of uh, of a violation or a human rights abuse that's taking place in Afghanistan. But when there is a massive explosion or when there's something that really kind of breaks the, the daily routine, we focus on it. So I think that is a challenge. And one of the things that I've come to, to realize is that American news organizations and, and certainly broadcast networks, they are not international news channels. You know, they cover the world for an American audience, which is a very different mandate than, let's say, the BBC or Al Jazeera English, which are, I think, in my opinion, traditionally more international news channels or even CNN International, which is really setting out to cover the world at all times for all people in different parts of the world. You know, we speak to a predominantly American news audience. And when you're trying to decide what happens or what to cover for an American news audience at any given moment, you're dealing with a very different variety of stories uh, and events than what you uh, do when you're dealing with the world. But having said that, that's why I personally, I'm trying to, with both the show that I did at 3pm and previous hours that I've anchored and now this show, is to say, to understand the moments when the conflict is at its peak with violence and intensity, you have to also understand what is happening when it's not grabbing the headlines, because the two are linked to each other. That also brings up an important point about having representation in media, right? Like if, it, and it's not just about, you know, having Arab or Muslim representation in media, it's also about story selection. When you have those voices on air, 
you also are covering those sort of foreign conflicts uh, before they become conflicts and, and you have a more holistic view of them as a news consumer. Do you think we're moving in the right direction? American media is moving in the right direction on that front, on the representation front. Yes, the short answer is it is moving in the right direction. Um, newsrooms are becoming more diverse, uh, people of different backgrounds. And it's important that diversity is not just cosmetic diversity. It's not, you know, or just superficial diversity. You don't want just the look of newsrooms to be different. You want there to be a difference in thought. You want there to be a difference in experiences. And you want people who are willing to speak up and challenge what had been the practice and the norm for decades. And, and I think that's the only way that newsrooms and news organizations get better with diversity is that you, you wanna make sure that, um, as I mentioned, people have the space and the freedom to speak up and say, we do X, but I think it should be done Y. You're, look, you're focusing on A, but you should really also consider B. And in doing so, you will have uh, better journalism. A lot of Americans got to know you during NBC's coverage of the Gaza war in 2014. And I think one of the most harrowing scenes you reported on was the killing of four Palestinian boys from a bomb on a beach in Gaza. And you had been kicking a ball around with them minutes before that attack. Witnessing that strike must have been one of the hardest things you've, you've had to do in your reporting career. Was it hard to continue covering war after that moment? Um... It's always hard covering war. I think, you know, I, I'm not going to lie and say to you that that particular moment was not defining in my life. It was. I mean, I think it really opened my eyes to a lot of, um, you know, challenges uh, on a personal level. Mm -hmm. But I do think that anytime you are witness to those types of atrocities, they fundamentally change you. They fundamentally change your, um, you know, your worldview about war, about conflict, <laughs> Um, it, it also makes you at a time, you know, really question humanity and just like to what extent humanity has um, been able to kind of forget sometimes the things that really are binding in all of us, whether it's young children playing soccer, whether it's, you know, the humanity of families that are just going about their day and trying to get by and trying to survive, whether it's here or anywhere else. And I think for me as a, as a journalist, it was definitely a very difficult period in my life, um, trying to kind of understand it and make sense of what it is that I was witnessing for sure. Um, but it didn't turn me off from willing to risk my life to be able to see those things. Because I think at the core of it, I think all journalists at some point, they have to answer the question as to whether or not they want to risk their lives to be able to witness um, conflict and report on these events. And you answer that question fundamentally when you begin your career. When, when I was a 24-year-old producer and they were saying, go to Iraq and live in Iraq and Baghdad, you make that decision like, is what I'm doing worth it? Is what I'm going to do and risk my life going to produce um, you know, journalism that is going to make a difference? And it was, it's a question that you ask yourself at a young age as a journalist. You probably ask it in different milestones of your life when you get married and you have children and whether or not your risk, your, you know, your, your risk tolerance changes. Mm -hmm. But fundamentally, once you answer it, I think you're committed to it. Because otherwise, the moment you feel that I am not doing something worth it, then you have to ask yourself, are you still uh, in, this, um, in this business for the right reasons? And I'm still very much, I mean, I still go to uh, places. I was in Guatemala earlier this year, which is also, you know, poses its own security challenges. 
I would certainly go and cover um, conflicts again, uh, whether it be Afghanistan or elsewhere. But I, my approach is how do you cover the conversation? How do you have a conversation that allows both the reporting on the ground to explain what is happening, but then how do you ask questions from people that are making the decisions about those conflicts and have opinions about those conflicts that can also help people understand? You, you also, you covered the Arab Spring uh, in 2011. And when I was reading your account of uh, what happened there when you were detained, I believe multiple times, it made me think of when pundits would compare Trump's treatment of the press during his administration to dictators in the Middle East and abroad. What did you make of those comparisons? I know, I think I uh, read an interview with you from you know back in 2018, where you were a little skeptical about comparing Trump to sort of foreign authoritarians. Yes and no. The difference is that most behavior towards press stems from the very top of governments who mm -hmm. set the tone. And the rhetoric of anti-press and anti-media exists around the world. What's different perhaps in the United States is the institutions and the laws skew towards protecting journalists to some extent, although, although you know, in recent years, there's been an erosion of that. But I think for the most part, the idea that journalists in this country are under attack by institutions um, is not the same, and it's not right to compare it to other countries in the world where journalists are assassinated and killed and rounded up and tortured and abused. Now, we've seen what rhetoric against the press does in a place like the United States. We've seen instances where, you know, I, I believe it was a CNN correspondent who was beaten or pushed away or arrested live on the air in Minneapolis during the mm -hmm. Black Lives Matter protests. Uh, my colleague was shot in the leg by a rubber bullet. That's not to say that those were intentional, but it is to say that the rhetoric of anti-media creates a climate where law enforcement and others feel empowered to go after journalists. And, and you, you also know, have, you know, the crazy guy who sent pipe bombs to CNN, who was exactly or the supporter. guy who walked into the local uh, newsroom. Again, I forgot which the which Capital one Gazette. Yeah, the Capital Gazette yeah. and shot people up there. So there is a line between the kind of anti-media rhetoric that we saw from uh, some of our politicians and then inspiring these attacks and allowing law enforcement and others to become uh, harsher in their tactics with the press. But that's also different than the wholesale, you know, state policy of anyone who is dissenting against a specific government or a regime in the region will have their licenses revoked, will be shut down, will be arrested, will be, you know, abused. Right. Our institutions are fortunately strong enough to, to you know, withstand now, having a president. Exactly. Well, does it, does the prospect of Trump running and perhaps being elected president in 2024, is that something that seriously concerns you on that, on that front? For sure. I think that if there is a, if there is a, um, you know, reemergence of Trump or Trumpism that is centered around anti-press um, or anti-media, I think you, it'll be risky and it'll be risky in the context of, aside from anything, you know, he does as an individual, but this, this anti-media frenzy is dangerous for democracy. And by the way, I just want to be clear, I, I don't necessarily just see it as a problem of Trumpism, because I do think, you know, going after people like going after people like Edward Snowden and whistleblowers and punishing whistleblowers in its own way is a kind of anti-media, uh, um, anti-free speech approach that is not healthy for our democracy. 
You know, you can't just have these like, uh, I mean, we saw Mike Pompeo apparently was in, in the previous administration was considering um, assassinating uh, whistleblowers and, and somebody like Edward Snowden and, and, you know, the reports by Yahoo that there was this kind of plot to go after him. That's extremely alarming and it's extremely dangerous. And, you know, like I said, luckily our institutions and our society at large have been able to kind of withstand that pressure. I'm not sure that, um, you know, another four years of Trump or continued Trumpism in our politics would necessarily um, withstand that or our society would necessarily withstand that. Now, lo looking forward uh, to the next couple of years, your show uh, has focused a lot on democratic politics. Obviously, uh, the Biden administration's agenda is a big story at the moment. Do you plan on having Republicans, Republican lawmakers on your show? Are you interested in, in inviting them on to talk? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I am a firm believer in that um, you can have Republicans come on the air, but there has to be a certain degree of honesty to why they're coming on the air, um, why they want to come on the air, and why we want to have them on the air. Um, but I do think, yes, I believe in conversations across the aisle. Not, in, not across the aisle in the sense of bipartisanship. I believe, you know, speaking not as a person who represents one party or the other, you want to try to get answers for the viewers and people who are um, watching. And so you want to make sure that you speak to people across the aisle on both fronts. Now, a lot of anchors have said that they wouldn't interview a Republican who is an election denier. What, what do you, what's your take on that issue? Would you have on a Republican that challenged the results of the 2020 election? Um, I would, but again, not in the context of a news reporter. So I, I just want to be very clear. I, I think that like, um, if I'm somebody who is, if in my previous job as a news anchor, which is meant to focus more a little bit on, on reporting, you want to have conversations that are, you know, moving the needle forward and having, you know, fact-based conversation. In, in this current space, I think you don't want to elevate people and you don't want to give them a platform, but there is a large part of this society. There's a large segment in this country that um, does not believe Joe Biden won the election. So you're not you're no longer talking about like a fringe conspiracy theory. Like I'm not talking about bringing a guy on the air who denies the moon landing and talking to him about that. We're talking about why it is in our current climate, this big lie has been able to get a hold and, and grip people the way that it has in these large numbers. It's and a majority of Republicans. Yeah, it's a majority of Republicans. And if we don't understand that, and if we don't try to explain that, um, I think, you know, we're there's a lot of danger in that. And we shouldn't be afraid of having these conversations where you disagree with people. And I'm not here to debate with them whether the election was legitimate or not. It's like, I wanna to try to understand why does misinformation um, spread the way that it's spread? And if somebody is spreading that information, I wanna to speak to them and try to understand what it is that they're doing and why they're doing it and challenge them. Now, my, my last question, uh, it's a quick one. Is it true that your brother played soccer professionally? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Are you any good? Um, I'm good. Yeah. I mean, actually, my brother and I, when we both played in high school, we were both, um, you know, I guess we had achieved the same level of success. I mean, maybe different records, but we were both pretty good. You know, all state, we both made all county. I was playing, you know, varsity at a young age. The difference was when we went to university, he was much more disciplined in the practice and the training. So he excelled in college, whereas I 
just wanted to travel and have fun and focus more on that. So I did not necessarily focus on uh, on soccer, but he definitely had a standout soccer career, both in college. And then uh, at the time there was no MLS, the professional league in the United States was called the A-League. So he played a couple of years in the A-League uh, in the U.S. here. Well, we'll have to get a, an MSNBC charity match going or something. I, would love to do that. I think that it would be exciting to see. <laughs> it's uh, one of the things I always try to talk about on the shows. Like I always try to bring a little uh, soccer. I know that uh, Joe Scarborough is a big soccer fan. Him and I have spent yep. a, few, uh, a few times talking together about uh, Mohamed Salah and Liverpool. and <laughs> Brilliant player. It's, yeah, a, it's unfortunate absolutely. that Joe Scarborough is a Liverpool fan. Or I should I, I say unfortunate. Are you a Liverpool fan? Um, I respect Liverpool. I okay. um, and I certainly respect somebody like Mohamed Salah, who I think is at the top of his game. Incredible right player. Just yeah, so, sensational. So for me, you know, the thing is about world soccer, and I think it's a little bit more different so than American sports is you can actually be a huge fan of an individual player um, mm. because you root for him regardless of what team he plays for. And so I think there are a lot of people who are big Messi fans who are hardcore Barcelona fans. And then they saw him go to PSG and perhaps now they're rooting for Messi in PSG. So I think somebody like Mohamed Salah, obviously he's Egyptian. I'm Egyptian. Um, I root for him and I love to see him excel. And I'm a big fan of how he plays the, the game and how he carries himself. But at the same time, I'm not somebody who was a, uh, you know, uh, hardcore Liverpool fan from uh, from day one. You also, I, I like that you could have a team in each European country, right? You can have yes, your, your team in France, you can have a team in England, you know, you can spread it around. Absolutely. Um, great. Thanks so much, Eamon. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Yeah, my pleasure. Anytime. Good to talk to you. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Interview. Please subscribe to The Interview on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and check out coverage of my conversation with Eamon on Mediaite.com. <laughs>